0: This is an ABC podcast. Hack.
1: (laughs) Hey, it's Dave Marcazy. Welcome to the Hack podcast. Should we be trying to make humans live longer? Like, a lot longer. Because billionaires are pumping a heap of money into this, into extending lifespans. So what are the ethical questions around this? And would you want to live an extra decade or two? We're going to be getting into this really interesting topic later in the podcast with an expert in bioethics, so stay listening for that. Also coming up, we're going to take you to a community in Western Australia, Halls Creek. It's really struggling with youth crime at the moment. First, though. With a referendum due later this
0: year, I believe the time for the voice has come. I resign without rancour or bitterness, and I remain a loyal liberal, fully committed to the leadership of Peter Dutton. On Triple
1: J. You know, a week ago, we didn't know where the Liberal Party was sitting on the voice to Parliament. But since then, a lot has happened. You remember, the opposition leader last week announced the Liberals would not support a constitutionally enshrined voice. Peter Dutton saying he's going to actively campaign against it. Then we had Liberal backbencher Bridget Archer announcing she was splitting from her party's view. She said she would campaign for the voice. There was former Liberal Indigenous Australians Minister Ken White. He quit the Liberal Party last week over its position on the voice. And then today, a Liberal frontbencher Julian Lisa said he's quitting the front bench to support the voice. There's a lot going on. Let's find out what this means for the Liberal Party. We've got Claudia Long with us from our Parliament House studio political reporter. Claudia Long, good to have you back on Hack. Lovely to be back, Dave. Now, Julie and Lisa, what's going on here? Who is this politician and why has he resigned? Because we've been seeing some big announcements coming from the Liberals over the past week. What's this one?
0: Yeah, so Julian Lisa, until this morning, he was Shadow Attorney-General, Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians and a Liberal politician who was representing the New South Wales seat of Barowra. Now, he's still representing that seat in the Parliament, but he's just resigned from the portfolios of Shadow Attorney-General and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, some of the most significant, I think, portfolios on the opposition front Front bench. We're talking about someone who's very senior in the federal opposition, and he's resigned so that he can support the voice to parliament, which is what we're all going to be voting on in a referendum later this year. Now, a voice to parliament would essentially act as an independent advisory body for the federal government, made up of First Nations people, basically advising the government on issues that have an impact on their lives. And it's not necessarily something, in fact, it's not going to be something at all that binds the government. It's purely an advisory body. And we're going to be voting on whether it should be enshrined in the constitution, hence a referendum being needed because that's the only way you can make changes to the constitution now the reason that julian lisa has resigned um, from his senior positions in the opposition front bench is because the coalition is actually pushing for people to vote no but he wants people to vote yes so he's been a long-term supporter of some kind of constitutional recognition for first nations people but up until recently he was still kind of you know really Uh, supporting his party's line of saying no to this version of the voice. He said there's things about Labor's proposal that he doesn't like, that the referendum should be pushed back until there's more community support. But ultimately, it's, you know, today he's made the decision to resign from those um, portfolios so that he can campaign to support the voice to parliament, to encourage people to vote yes. Now, that's something that all coalition backbenchers can do. And he's already got a bit of company on the backbench here, which is basically everyone in parliament uh, is a backbencher if they're not on the government front, Bench, so in the ministry or in the opposition front bench which is the shadow ministry so there's a bit of company on the back bench particularly um obviously in labor because uh, the government is supporting people voting yes but also on the coalition opposition side so Bridget Archer and Andrew Bragg uh, have already flagged that they'll be supporting people to vote yes as well but you can't uh, go against your party's position and remain in the front bench so that's why he's resigned from those positions and uh yeah it looks like it's going to be an interesting one because that's potentially going to put a bit of pressure on on other opposition front benches as well, Dave.
1: Yeah, I mean, we heard from Bridget Archer on Hack last week, and she was being pretty open with her opinions. But as you say, it's because she is a backbencher, so she is able to do that. A bit of a surprise to see uh, Julian Lisa maybe make this decision and, and move away from the front bench. This was a little bit of what he had to say.
2: I'm a supporter of the Voice. I think it's right that it has a
3: place in the Constitution. I think though, making those amendments, puts the referendum uh, on a better chance of success. Uh, what I'm doing today is to resign on a point of principle so I can campaign yes.
1: Claudia, uh, what's Peter Dutton had to say? I mean, he's the opposition leader. Has he had much to say today?
0: Yeah, so for his part, Julie, he says that Julian Lees' view is um unique within the party. Now, you know, yes, he's certainly not um the only person holding this view, because like we mentioned before, Bridget Archer, Andrew Bragg, but at the moment, there haven't been many um coalition MPs coming forward to say, yes, I'll go against what my party wants and vote yes for The Voice. And this is kind of one of the interesting things about this, purely from a political perspective, leaving aside the policy. But basically, this resignation lays down the gauntlet for other liberal Liberal MPs who potentially do share Julian Lisa's support for the voice to justify why they're not doing this as well why they're not essentially sticking to their view and stepping back from their senior positions in the opposition now it's been reported that some other senior members of the shadow cabinet like former trade Minister Simon Birmingham former foreign minister Maurice Payne actually potentially wanted their party to support the voice I think they're now going to be asked to justify why they're not doing exactly what Julian Lees has done um, and purely on the politics side as well like there's you know plenty of rumors floating around here in Canberra at the moment about opposition leader Peter Dutton's leadership, whether he's going to be able to stay the course as leader of the coalition, whether he'll be dumped in a spill and replaced with someone else and this campaign on The Voice uh, is, is in a way by some people here in Parliament, I think, being seen as a test of his leadership, of his influence, and I think, too, over the control he actually has over his own party colleagues. So, interestingly, in today's press conference, we heard Julian Lisa actually mention Peter Dutton quite a lot, uh, how many times, you know, he likes and respects Peter Dutton, clearly trying to fend off, I think, any of that speculation about leadership trouble. But I think even though he's done that, you know, this speculation is going to carry on for a long time and this campaign for the referendum still has a long way to run.
1: Political reporter Claudia Long, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. And we will have the latest on this as it continues to develop, uh, to develop Sorry, this story. We're going to try and get the opposition leader on. Hack, you'll hopefully be hearing from him and all kinds of other people as well. Hack. It takes time, you know, and you have to really speak to them, engage with them and really make them feel like they're worth something, you know? On Triple J. Yeah, we were just talking about the voice to parliament proposal. And while we're hearing a lot about this at a political level, the reason we're discussing any of this at all is because there are serious problems and disadvantage impacting many First Nations Australians. Youth crime is something that's being discussed a lot at the moment. There's a big focus on Alice Springs. But it's an issue in other parts of the country too, including in Western Australia. ABC reporter Ted O'Connor is based in Kununurra and he's been looking into this. He's been visiting a place called Halls Creek where school attendance, youth crime are at crisis point. He's with me now. G'day, Ted. Thanks for coming on Hack. G'day. Uh, Can you
2: tell us a bit about Halls Creek? Like where is it? Who lives there? So Halls Creek is a town of about 1,500 people, three hours south of Cunanar. It's on the fringe of the Great Sandy Desert and it's mainly populated by Indigenous people and the other and white people are just mainly service providers. So essentially uh, it's a hub for a number of different cultures. You have um, the desert groups like Jaru, Um, Walmajari, Kukajar and then Gija um, people to the north and as a result a lot of the kids they speak English as a second or third language so they'll speak what's known as Kimberley Creole often and then some desert languages uh, after that. So it is a um, very remote um, and outback town but it is a community that's brimming with culture and um, brimming with lots of different um, people from uh, different language groups there, too.
1: Look, there are some big problems in Halls Creek that people may have heard of, uh, as well as youth crime in other parts of the country. But how bad is it in Halls Creek?
2: It's sadly really bad. So, youth crime is at record levels, and the main thing is car, it's, it's sort of. Um, teenagers just relentlessly stealing cars, breaking into homes and uh, throwing rocks at cars and just business people going, doing their daily um, things. And this is driving service people out of the town, which is just um, really makes things um, even worse for just, you know, that provision of service delivery. Then factoring into this, there's enormous amount of kids out on the street at night. and They're not going to school. So in secondary, the secondary attendance rate at the local school uh, has fallen to 26%, which is an absolute crisis when you think that across the nation it's around 80%. I've worked in other places as a journalist where it's considered a crisis of 50 or 60%. And the other big factor that's really... Um, Um, really just compounding this issue is widespread overcrowding in housing. There just isn't enough housing stock available, barely any private um, affordable rentals. And this means it's not uncommon to have 15 or 20 people in a home. Um, This can increase things like domestic violence. and There'll be a lot of alcohol consumption. It just drives kids out on the street. And often in those homes, that's where you get your intergenerational trauma, a lot of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, um, which means kids are growing up um, already with, you know, lifetime um, brain damage, which is just heartbreaking. So these sort of factors, these sort of things really just factor into each other and take an enormous amount of work to try and reverse.
1: Yeah. And I mean, like in terms of how the community is coping with this, you mentioned before, like, you know, some business owners are really struggling in terms of the crime situation. One guy you spoke to has had to pack up and
2: leave. Yes, yeah, so his, um, that was Peter Booby. His business, they're going to leave Halls Creek um, when I spoke to him, and they said youth crime is one of the biggest factors. I've also spoken to other tradesmen who have left because of youth crime. We know teachers um, and nurses, some of them have just said, look, we, we just can't deal with the relentless youth crime. Often their government houses are often the ones that are attacked it's quite heartbreaking for you know some of the cultural leaders and elders they try and you know have to build these good relationships with service providers and it's just you know when people come in from an outside area and when they do leave because of these um, relentless crime it's just it's just it's just a terrible result did you get to speak with young people there ted like
1: what are they saying
2: yeah, I spoke to teenagers out on the street. We didn't meet and interview a couple of young teenagers. The kids we spoke to out on the street, you tell they were just out there, you know, for an escape, for friendship, to muck around, you know, from talking to them, it didn't sound like the life at home was that great. They were just looking for a bit of excitement and a bit of fun. It's, it's not one factor that drives kids out on the street. It can be many factors. It can be just, you know, a place where they'd feel comfortable um but we also spoke to other teenagers who feel really uncomfortable about the youth crime that's going on and the um the fact that you know a lot of people in their cohort um turning up to court as a 15 and 16 year old over and over again is just a sort of a daily you know a thing and it's quite it's quite sad i sit in court and see a lot of young indigenous people go through the court system and it's not there is no easy fixes there because Obviously, if you have someone who steals a car and, you know, ram raids a business, there is an, an expectation for community that that person um, shouldn't be allowed back on the streets in the community. However, it's just, you know, when you see young people fall into that cycle of offending, it can be really difficult. So, court is normalised too often for young people there. It's... um you know, being out on the street is a very normal thing. Um, going to school, you know, you can tell, you spoke, I've spoken to kids who just generally just lost confidence with school. You know, it's been years since they've been at school and when they were at school, it was probably, you know, a feeling of that they were at the bottom of the class. So it's, you know, it's a really, it's really tough thing for kids growing up in Horse Creek and there are a lot of different factors which lead them into these situations where they aren't going to school and they are resorting to youth crime. So what are the people in the community saying about what
1: needs to change? Because you were speaking as well as the young people, you were speaking to their parents and grandparents as well. What were they saying?
2: Um, so I spoke to Eva Johnson, who's um, a grandparent, um, and she has – she's. Um, made she's really strived to make sure her kids and grandkids have got a good education. Um, the main feedback we here in town is to try and more cultural involvement in the school, um, making sure the kids are taught Braille and language alongside English, um, making sure kids are going out on country, discovering their skin group, um, really reconnecting with their culture. There's also a big desire for more intensive work with families. So there's one government work program at the moment um, that's trying to work intensively with families where they're... Kids are at risk of state care. Yeah, you mentioned you spoke to Eva, a 60-year-old
1: Jarrow woman. Let's have a little bit of a listen to what she had to say.
4: We're so blessed to be living in
1: in a remote area like this. There's so many things that we can take them and teach them. We have waterholes, we have a story to tell, the history to be told. It's all there. We have it. But we don't have the resources. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with ABC reporter Ted O'Connor about, you know, big, massive youth crime issues in Halls Creek in the East Kimberley region of WA. Ted, it sounds like most people are a bit over how politicians are handling these situations. Like, you touched on this a bit before, but just the whole kind of fly in, fly out nature and not really understanding the communities.
2: Well... It, what, when Anthony Albanese flew into um, Alice Springs for the day and flew out and there was just talk on alcohol bans people were just sort of perplexed like an alcohol bans if you come to the Kimberley can be a great policy in one place it cannot be a good policy in other place it can depend on the perspective who's introduced the alcohol ban was it community led was it coming was it coming over the top it's a very alcohol bans are very complex and so just to be, you know, deconstructed into this are alcohol bans, good or not, for that to be the national debate, people just thought that was slightly ridiculous. And so they thought if, if Albanese and some senior bureaucrats are coming to Horse Creek, they really need to spend some time there. I've been to Horse Creek probably about 10 times in my two years, and I found the only way I can get some sort of understanding is to spend, you know, hours yarning with people After doing all that, you just wonder how um, a bureaucrat who rolls in or a politician who rolls in for one day could possibly get an understanding Um, because Indigenous people especially really value face-to-face conversation, sitting down, listening to each other and really slowly coming to an understanding on these topics and also not trying to push, you know, policies into one particular box. So when it comes to things like the voice to parliament, a lot of people in Halls Creek are so overwhelmed with the issues they're just it's just almost like you know there's some people who are very interested in it but many people I've spoken to were just like well will it achieve something we don't know because it feels like nothing else has achieved much and even if you do have a seat at the table will it um, actually lead to good results some people in Halls Creek you know so it's it's are optimistic about it so this is quite what we need you know perhaps this is what's been missing but when you're dealing with these daily crises, it can be quite, you know, can be quite challenging. But I should also point out there are so many positives, positivities to Halls Creek. The place has produced an unbelievable amount of AFL footballers. The town has so many close connections. You know, it, it seems to be such a tight knit place where people do really respect each other. So the the issues that it's facing, it, do, it does break people's hearts. There.
1: We appreciate you covering this, speaking with us, ABC reporter Ted O'Connor. Thanks for joining us on Hack.
2: Thank you. Hack
1: on Triple J. Yeah, and you can go read Ted's piece. It's on ABC online. He's uh, spoken to a lot of different people, uh, big interviews with really interesting stuff to say. Go check it out.
2: Hack. That is a shocking number. We were surprised to see it. But of course, we know that the minimum wage is growing far slower than the wages of CEOs.
1: On Triple J. The rich keep getting richer. That's what they say. And it turns out, probably unsurprisingly, the research backs it up. The Australia Institute has been looking into this. I don't know whether you've seen this story out today. Apparently, the richest 10% of Aussies hoarded 93% of our collective wealth between the financial crisis in the early 2000s and the pandemic. How is this happening? And how do we compare to other countries? What is going on? Well, Eliza Littleton is a senior economist at the Australia Institute. She's with us now. G'day, Eliza. Thanks for coming on Hack.
3: No worries. Thanks for having me.
1: What exactly did your research find?
3: Yeah, so our research found and shows that income inequality has gotten worse in Australia in the la- in recent decades, as you as you've just mentioned, uh, and it's not shocking. So we've seen in the past sixty years, up to two thousand and eight. Um, We've, you know, for the most part, we lived in an Australia with a fair go. So that's our parents and our grandparents who lived and worked in a country where the majority of economic benefits from growth flowed to the bottom 90% of income earners. And, you know, this is most Australians, you know, and you love, uh, and this is what we would expect to see. So most people getting most of the benefits but we've seen a big reversal in this trend in the past 10 years. Uh, so, most of the growth now is going to the rich. The, the vast majority of Australians who were getting over 50% of the benefits are now only getting 7% of the benefits from economic growth. Meanwhile, the top 10% of income earners are now pocketing 93% of the gains. So, you know, most Australians are missing out on this fa- on their fair share of growth.
1: I guess there'll be people out there, Eliza, thinking, oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Does it su- actually surprise you?
3: No, I mean, I think it isn't a very shocking um, finding. I think it's it's validating, in fact. I think most people are experiencing that their wages aren't keeping up um, at the moment, particularly with the cost of prices the prices of goods and services. They can't purchase as much. It's hard to keep a roof over their heads. And yet we're seeing businesses, particularly big businesses, record record profits. I mean, you know, go back a couple of weeks and we saw Coles and Woolworths and Santos and Qantas record record profits. And this is exactly what the data is confirming.
1: So this research was carried out until 2019. Well, that's what it was looking at. Uh, Do we know if the trend has continued, whether since the pandemic uh, that's uh, where we're at now?
3: Yes, I mean, we can speculate basically, uh, and because I think taking a step back, understanding why this is happening, um, is, is the first, is the first thing we should do. And that is because basically, um, wage, wages have been at a record low over the past decade and uh, profit growth has been at a record high. So, you know, most people, um, most of your listeners, will get their incomes from wages, and wages have been stagnant since, as you mentioned, the global financial crisis. Uh, and on the other hand, the growth in profits has been much higher. So, you know, if you're earning a wage, um, then and you get most of your income from wages, uh, basically you're not getting your share of this economic growth. But if you own a big business and uh, you derive most of your income from um, this, you know, and this is the story for the top 10% of income earners in Australia, then you are benefiting. Uh, So basically, I think... What we're seeing in the, at the moment is that real wages are actually declining and profits are at a rec- record high. So we can expect to see this trend continue okay. past 2019.
1: We've got uh, some messages coming through on this one. Someone says successive conservative governments in Australia were in the belief that the poorest 5% were lazy rather than the richest 5% being selfish. That was from Marty and Toowoomba. Eliza, do we know where we sit compared to other countries when it comes to this?
3: Yeah. So the research does go into this. Australia is now basically a global outlier in the maldistribution of gains from economic growth. So we fall behind lots of similar countries in the European Union, even the US, the UK, China, Canada. So in In these countries, economic growth uh, over the last decade was much more evenly spread. Um, So, yeah, Australia is doing bad by international standards.
1: So what's the solution, I guess? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, policies that could be brought in. There'd be things like the stage three tax cuts that you probably say they need to go. What, What are the solutions? (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, there are a range of, of tax and policy changes that government could uh, implement to address this. The big the big one and uh, one of the first things yet I agree that they should and could do is reconsider the stage three income tax cuts, which are due to come into effect mid next year uh, because they will make inequality worse in Australia. So about half of the stage three income tax cuts will go to people earning more than $180,000 per year. So we're roughly talking about this 10% that have, you know, made off like bandits in the last decade. Um on the other hand, people earning $45,000 or less will receive nothing from these tax cuts. So this is absolutely one of the things the government could do to address the, the inequality that um, has stemmed from the distribution of national income in Australia over the last decade. OK, we can put it
1: to them, the government, the next time we have them on. Eliza Littleton from the Australia Institute, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on Hack.
3: No worries. Thank you. Hack. From the quest for the Holy Grail through to the search for the fountain of eternal youth, human history and its mythology is littered with our obsession with youth and immortality.
1: On Triple J. If you could live for an extra 10 or 15 years, would you? Would you want to? Because it's an interesting idea, right? and it's something that billionaires really want to do like they're investing a lot of money into this stuff trying to find out if we can actually live longer extend our lifespans but how could this technology work and more importantly should we be trying to live longer at all like is is it ethical what are the ethical considerations we should be looking at let's ask someone who has been looking right into this. Dr. Julian Copeland is a lecturer in bioethics at Monash University, and he's been studying lifespan extension. Dr. Copeland, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. What are these billionaires doing, the ones that are investing all of this money into lifespan
4: extension? What exactly are they pouring their money into? Uh, so the most recent case is Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, which developed ChatGPT, and he's invested a you know a really significant portion of his fortune into this new startup that's uh, trying this three pronged strategy to try to reduce and reverse aging. Uh, so some of what this startup is looking at, or what one of the most maybe striking things is they're looking at the possibility of replacing blood. So there's this fascinating research showing that with mice, uh, if you give old mice the blood of younger mice, if you sort of hook them up so they share a single blood system, they can actually push back uh, aging somewhat and make them in some ways biologically younger. So I guess that's one of these avenues that, that they're looking into. And the end goal, I think, at least for the short term, is to try to push back aging so that we could get maybe another 10 or so years of life. And the longer term goal But once we achieve 10 years extra, you know, the question becomes, where do we stop? Do we want to go to 50 to 100 to 200 to end aging altogether and live sort of something close to immortality until eventually we get hit by a car or, you know, die in an accident? Wow!
1: Um, look, there's so many questions here. Got a lot of messages coming through as well. Someone says morality will be the first casualty of immortality. Another person, Reese, says, "How did you do it, Dave?" That's a joke, Reese. Um, Reese thinks I'm 200 years old. I want to know, Doctor Copeland. You know, like, what are the pros and cons here? Like, you're looking at it from like an ethical
4: perspective. Uh, what have you surmised? So, I think there's one really, really serious benefit, which is that if we manage to push back the date that somebody dies for a little while, we're effectively saving their life, right? And saving people's lives is generally considered a really good thing. If you stop somebody from getting hit by a car and then they don't die for another 10 years, you might think, oh, great, you know, I've pushed back their life expectancy by 10 years. I saved their life. They got to do more living in that time. They got to enjoy more of all the things that makes life worth living. So I think that's really powerful. And against that, you have quite a few different kinds of concerns. Some, I think, are more convincing than others. Uh, probably the one that I'm the most worried about is what it would mean for social, moral, scientific progress if we slow down ageing to the point that we end up sort of halting or, or bringing generational turnover down to a kind of crawl.
1: Oh, interesting, so, in terms of there'd be less younger people, for instance,
4: in positions of power. Yeah, Absolutely. So at the moment you have, well, generations, you know, a generation will spend a bit of time at the helm of society and then they'll step back and then they'll die and somebody else will take over. And this happens in the arts, this happens in politics, this happens in the sciences. And the views and beliefs of the younger generations are often quite different to the older generations. And we tend to think, you know, we've seen quite a bit of really beneficial progress as a result of this. So in science you have uh, the German physicist Max Planck Uh, saying that, well, when you have a new scientific truth, it doesn't triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light so much as because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. So in this kind of way, you know, we have scientific theories come to be accepted, at least in part because of generational turnover, because there are different people who are less set in their ways or less used to seeing the world in a particular way sort of climb up through the ranks. And I think the same is very true of moral progress. If we look back at past societies, there are any number of things we might criticize in previous cultures, moral codes. We might look at something like the women's rights movement. We might look at something like slavery. Uh, We might look at something like religious wars and crusades. We might say, you know, gosh, it's great that we don't do that anymore. You know, aren't we enlightened? Haven't we made a lot of moral progress? But the question is, we think that all these past societies have gotten it wrong. Uh, how can we be confident that we've gotten it right? Maybe there's more progress that needs to be made and maybe we're going to end up slowing down that progress if we end up slowing down this generational turnover. Interesting. Also the fact that it could just be really boring if you extend your life, right? Like, you know, you could live an extra 10 years and they might be a boring 10 years. Yeah, so that's a big concern. And that's one of the most common ones I hear when I talk about this with my students. Uh, some really fantastic philosophical work by the philosopher Bernard Williams, who, who argues something along those lines. So the idea is, you know, what makes life worth living is that you're engaged in these projects, that they're really important long-term projects, things like Raising kids, or reaching the top of a career, all or reading a novel—yes,
1: yes, yes yeah. all those milestones we have. And if you can't, yep. if you can't, um, you know, if you if you're living forever, maybe we won't try as hard. Look, I wish we had a bit more time, Dr. Julian Copeland, <laughs> but unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you very much, though, for in uh, joining us on Hack. If you want to read more of Dr. Julian's uh, research into this, you can find it on the Conversation. He's written a brilliant piece. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.